0: This, this change is going to be massive and very, very hard. Uh, some technologies are going to be easier to make work than others. Uh, I think a good example is you know, solar production and wind production. Uh, you can produce those things in isolation, but somehow you've got to get that energy to the grid. That's a, that's a huge expense. Um, and, of course, you've got the intermittent problem with those kind of sources. You are food. listening to the Afar podcast.
1: Real estate technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. So here we are at the end of June in 2022, and it seems that every time we look at the news, It's another story about the melting of the ice caps, new record high temperatures, epic storms, fires, droughts of biblical scale, geopolitical instability and civic unrest that we really haven't seen before. It sometimes feels like we're trapped in the bleakest dystopian Hollywood movie you can imagine, but perhaps our fears are obscuring opportunity. Jeffrey Canning pointed out to me that Albert Einstein once said, in the midst of difficulty lies opportunity. And Jeffrey, who's the CEO of National Real Estate Advisors, along with his colleague, Darb Malik Madoni, wrote a fascinating white paper called Climate Change is Generating a Tech Revolution. And in that white paper, he wrote, rather than imagining a world ravaged by climate change, dare to imagine a world magnificently transformed by the technologies that are created to fight that climate change. We believe that is our future. And that's why I'm especially pleased to be able to sit down with Jeffrey today and to hear some of his insights about this more optimistic view of our future and the role that commercial real estate has in that climate change technological Transformation. So, thank you, Jeffrey, for joining me on the A Fire podcast.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me to, to talk to you today.
1: Why, why don't we just set the stage to start with in the conversation about what is the state of play, and, and certainly from a real estate perspective and the built environment perspective, what is happening with climate change?
0: Well, climate change is uh, accelerating rapidly. Uh, every piece of scientific evidence that's legitimate uh, would confirm that. Um, and people are reacting to that. I believe people are reacting to that. Our government's not as fast as we would like, but the private sector is reacting quickly, Uh, and that's really one of the reasons we wrote this paper. Um, It's it's the private sector that's going to ultimately deliver the fundamental solutions to our problems. It's not going to be the government, and private enterprise, even though certain sectors might have a reputation for having their head in the sand, and not wanting to recognize uh, what's happening uh, in the end if you're a successful entrepreneur or a businessman you got to face reality and that reality is is not just dawning on a lot of big corporations it is it's bot gospel now yeah and they are reacting with all kinds of technologies to to take advantage of the future the profits are going to come i mean i think most people are motivated by Uh, generally good impulses to begin with, but then you couple that with the possibility of gigantic profits, and things start to change. It
1: also seems to me that at least the institutional investor marketplace has been taking somewhat of a leadership role, depending on what part of the world you're talking about, in terms of saying, this is important. We, we need to be thinking in terms of sustainability. Certainly, uh, the European and the Canadian investors that are within AFIRE have been talking a lot about this for a long time, but suddenly there's greater energy. And part of what's interesting to me is how negative everyone is about it. Like, you know, look how awful we are and we, how much farther we have to go. But it does seem like some progress
0: is being made. Oh, I think a lot of progress is being made. Um, and a lot more progress will be made in the next few years. We're mm-hmm. just starting to see some of the technologies come online that really have been thought about for many, many years. It takes a very long time to, uh, to change an environment that's been built over a very long period of time. Um, but once you get some traction and if there's enough motivation, it happens quickly. I think uh, you know, in our paper that we wrote, um, air conditioning has always been a fascinating technological change to, uh, to me – and I should I should add that, you know, we one of the reasons we think about these things, and we've written a variety of white papers on different kinds of technologies. Now technologies have changed the way we live and then therefore the built environment is because our, our investment strategy is we, we just build new stuff. Uh and when it gets uh even remotely obsolete, we get rid of it. Yeah. Because we believe, um, oh well, I guess based on a book I read many, many decades ago. Uh, Alvin Toffler's Future Shock. I don't know if you ever read that book. Absolutely, And uh, it generates a lot of the motivation I have for trying to anticipate what the future is going to bring. Because if you're not conscious of what's happening around you, ultimately you wake up one day, as he said, he (laughs) prophesized in his book or predicted, you'll wake up and you'll have culture shock and you won't even know what it is that's bugging you. Uh, and as a former Peace Corps volunteer who lived in an African village for a couple of years, I have an idea what culture shock's all about and what reverse culture shock's all about. So we, we at our firm have a bunch of people here who focus on where, where's the future? Um, where's it going? How's it going to impact us? And, of course, climate change is probably the biggest thing right now because it it's generating technological change that's going to affect – the built environment, and the way we live in many, many ways. We
1: only change when we have to. And when we do, we can change very, very quickly. But it seems like we're now at, its, at a state where, to a certain extent, we have to. We have to move. And so it's a lot easier for us to embrace change. Because change is hard. It's, it's difficult. It's uncertain. But now we're in an environment where you kind of have to. Um,
0: yeah. And I, th- I think, though, this is a little different from other kinds of technological changes. Uh, take the automobile. I mean, the automobile deal really did rapidly change things, but it took decades uh, before, before it started to change how we shop, where we live, how we get from one place to another, how we pollute our own environment. I mean, both good and bad. And ultimately, I think you could make the argument the automobile was ultimately worse or not as good as it, it could have been. Right. Uh, and then we have autonomous cars, and we've written some stuff on autonomous cars, uh, which are a reaction to a lot of things and technological developments. But that's going to have a significant change when, when it does come to the fore, which is going to be 10 or 15 years from now. Yeah. Uh, but this change, the change where we get our energy, which is the most fundamental building block of any modern economy. And if you really boil it down, if you strip away the progress we've made with the production and use of energy – we would basically be back in the middle ages yeah. that's uh maybe not that far back but you know getting our firewood finding you know, digging peat finding coal uh to keep ourselves warm but this this change is going to be massive and very very hard uh some technologies are going to be easier to make work than others uh, i think a good example is you know solar production and wind production uh, you can produce those things in isolation but somehow you've got to get that energy to the grid that's a, that's a huge expense. Um, and, of course, you've got the intermittent problem with those kind of sources. be much, much faster. And in our paper, we cover a couple of sources of energy that basically you could plug into the current infrastructure. If you can do that, uh, you can the electrical infrastructure, if you can do that, then you could change things pretty quickly. But the route we're going right now without those kinds of uh, technologies, and I talk about some of them, fusion, deep geothermal, Uh, Without those, um, or or also a fission, some of the new fission modules that are coming out or will be coming out. Uh, Outside of those, the changes are going to be much, much smaller, more incremental. So we really need to swing for the fence. And some people are doing it to be able to use the existing electrical infrastructure to you know, produce energy in a green, sustainable way, but use that infrastructure, which means producing hundreds of megawatts of power at a plant, not one megawatt out of a solar farm that only produces power during the day. Not to say the solar power doesn't have a place and wind power doesn't have a place, but uh, I think we've reached a point where we need bigger and uh, more dramatic changes. And we're seeing some changes uh, of attitude uh, in Europe right now, brought on by the Russian invasion, they're going to start some fission plants again. And although fission plants aren't perfect, obviously, uh, they're a whole lot better than burning uh, fossil fuels and they're a whole lot better than supporting you know, the Russian regime. Right. Um, so anyway, uh.
1: well, it's interesting to me that you point out that we need to do a big swing for the fences, but that's not extraordinary when you figure that almost every hundred years for a while now we've done precisely that. I mean, we went to coal and that defined the 19th century. We went to we went to oil and that defined the 20th century. So now we're shifting again to and, and the implications for those different energy sources, went all the way through all the different industries, all the different parts of life, and really kind of transformed us over a period of decades. It wasn't something that happened immediately. Um, But I'd love for you to maybe talk a little bit about it, because you did it in the white paper, in terms of some of these swing-for-the-fences kinds of energy, because we talk a lot about solar power and wind. That's become part of what everyone accepts. But you start talking about things like deep geothermal. So what are you talking about when you talk about there, and what kind of implications to deep
0: geothermal? Well, deep... Geothermal um, would be an enormous game changer and uh, very economically uh, viable because it could use the current infrastructure, even be done – it could be, first of all, be done virtually anywhere in the world because the core of the earth is the same temperature whether you're drilling in from Alaska or drilling in from Saudi Arabia. You go down 12 miles and you get a certain level of heat that allows you to – create steam to generate turbines. Um, the question or the problem has always been, how do you get 12 miles deep, roughly 20 kilometers? Um, and recently, there's been a new technology by a company called Quaze, uh, uh Electronics, I think their name is. Um, uh, they, they, based on some uh, science from MIT, which I understand is based on some science that was discovered in the process of the new developments with fusion technology, um, are creating the possibility, they think in two years they'll have this, uh, uh, to create a drill, which is uh, effectively a microwave kind of drill that vitrifies the sides of the hole as it goes down. Uh, It vaporizes the soil, so you don't drill through rocks with a a drill bit. You actually vaporize the rocks, and you pump that rock out um, in a vaporized form And as you do that, it vitrifies the sides of the hole. So you effectively have a glass lined hole uh, and you go down 12 miles to get to the heat that it takes to generate a power plant. Now, the beauty of this, if it works, and I'm optimistic based on what I've seen that it will work, um, that uh, you could build this. Every existing power plant in the world that has a gas fired or oil fired steam turbine uh, could drill a hole and use that energy source, the heat source from below, to continue doing exactly what it's doing. And of course, the high transmission lines are already at these sites. So the ability to do this anywhere in the world um, is just, it's the biggest game changer. Of all the technologies I've read about, this is the one that you think, wow. And this particular company has a bunch of oil field drilling specialists involved with it. I mean, they, they think about what the oil companies have done in terms of drilling technology, uh, and they're involved in this, and uh, that's very encouraging to me. Uh, and interestingly, uh, ARPA, uh, ARPA-E, which is the Advanced Research Project uh, uh, arm of the you know, Defense Department, but they now have this E section of it. They're involved in this, and they've done some grants, and And I think, interestingly, the some of the Techno or some of the research they're doing is being done in Tennessee uh, at Oak Ridge Laboratories, which would be very fitting. Yeah. Um, so I think that is, you know, that could change things in a huge way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, um, there are some others. Fusion. Yeah. Uh, now, many people would laugh about fusion.
1: But there seems to be so much activity around that and uh, some new fusion experimental um, reactors being created all over the world at the moment. It seems like there's more energy than there has been for the de- over the last few decades.
0: There's a lot of energy, a tremendous amount of energy. There's a wonderful new book that came out last year uh, called The Star Builders. Um, the author's name escapes me at the moment. It'll come to me. But... Uh, I recommend it, um, put a lot of people to sleep, but I thought it was very exciting, and it, it is in many respects a uh, summary of what's gone on uh, recently over the last 10 or 15 years, what's going on right now, where it's going on, uh, who's funding it, and uh, since that book was written, there have been a couple of big milestones hit uh, that actually are discussed in that book. Um, now we're nowhere near or some some of the people involved would say we are near a solution to this um, it's clear that we we will get there one day how soon we'll get there i don't know but like geothermal energy that we just discussed uh it's limitless free energy yeah um and both of those sources if you think about energy is the building block of economic progress uh, free, pollution-free energy has the ability to make us all rich. Yeah, uh, Every single person on Earth uh, could live the kind of life that we can only dream about. So is it worth spending money on fusion? Yeah, people are. And yeah. one, one of the points the book makes that I think is also true of the, of the geothermal drilling technology, uh, there's private sector capital, billions and billions and billions of dollars coming into these spaces. And uh, that doesn't happen unless a lot of people with very uh, cold eyes, if I can use that term, uh, who aren't uh, doing, there's not donations. These are we think that this technology has reached a stage where we can make some money. Yeah. So it's not you know it's not two million dollar grant from the government. And we're talking about billions and billions of dollars. So that's a good indicator that there's something real that could happen sooner rather than later.
1: If well, let's let's think about this a little bit, it, you know, if, if if sources such as fusion or um, or uh, g- deep geothermal become a reality, we still are going to have some issues from an infrastructure standpoint. You know, kind of moving ourselves to an electrification kind of environment where all the cars are electric and everything we do is electric. But that also means storage, um, and you talked a bit about it in your white paper around the different forms of storage and the development that's taking place in terms of battery or other. Uh, sources of energy storage. How do you think that is going to be evolving?
0: Yeah, I think, um, I guess a a premise that I'm operating under is that in order to eliminate the use of fossil fuel, you have to have a complete electrification of our energy infrastructure. Uh, In the United States, uh, you know, oil is essentially only used for transportation. So if we can eliminate the transportation, uh, use of oil for transportation, we could uh, eliminate most of our co2 emissions here we've still got coal plants and and some uh, gas plants but eventually they they would go away as well um, but I think um, the electric car movement is uh, well in hand and right I think again you know look at the money uh, GM Ford uh, via uh, uh, Volkswagen uh, everybody every car company in the world sees their future in electric cars and they are, producing more models every day. I've been an electric car driver for a long time. Uh, I was reading an article the other day. I think it was a Hyundai's Ionic uh, car. And I, and they were just saying what a fantastic car it was. And I happened to be on the freeway, and I saw two of them, <laughs> uh, two different models. Yeah. And, uh, it, so that that's happening very quickly. And, 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 and that's a far cry
1: from, say, the, the luxury
0: electric car
1: that's only available to a select few. When you're talking about Hyundai producing, that's much more of a mass market uh, that's right. vehicle.
0: And Bolt just reduced their, the, or GM just reduced the price of Bolt to yeah. $27,000, which is wow. very uh, affordable for most people. And that, that is before any tax credit that they might get, and GM still gets tax credits. Fantastic. Um, so, but, but
1: isn't there a bit of a kind of a wall that we're facing in terms of the, the limitations of lithium and lithium ion batteries, you know, in terms of being able to keep creating them? I mean, there seem to be a lot of issues around that. What do you think? What do you think has to happen for this to become
0: truly uh, the standard? Well, I think we we have problems with precious metals. We have problems with you know getting uh, nickel. Uh, we have problems with um, lithium. Lithium production uh, it's dominated by a few companies today. But in the United States and in Canada and Australia and actually all around the world, there is a huge amount of money going into the production of of lithium and uh, lithium. Uh, hydroxide, I happen to be an investor in a company, uh, I <laughs> think, in, uh, think in the state that you, uh, North Carolina, uh-huh. uh, I think you went to school in North yeah, Carolina, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. And uh, there's a company down there that um, is very exciting to me uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, not least of which it's in the United States. So there are there are uh, people developing lithium mines all over the U.S. and in Canada and North America, so ultimately, I think, and lithium is not a rare commodity right. at all. It's right, just it's pretty question. common. Yeah. yeah, it's common. It's a question of producing it, and it's the rare metals that are, are, are at issue. Uh, but capitalism will solve that problem for us. Okay. I really, I really believe that. Um, and I think sooner rather than later, uh, this mine in North Carolina that, uh, that I'm interested in, uh, I think, will be a good test case because... It sits in the middle of where many of the uh, new uh, electric car factories are going. Okay, Tesla has given it a huge order. Uh, it just needs some permits from the county and from uh, the jurisdictions around it. Uh, and will they get them? I think they'll get them. Uh, oh, that's exciting. W- we'll see. But I think um, you know the combination of uh, new battery technology, solid-state batteries in particular, uh, which um, look like they're poised to become. Uh, not common, but become viable and then perhaps common in the not too distant future. they will really accelerate this move to, to electrification because they can store so much power, so much more power than a regular lithium ion battery with a lot less weight. right. Um, but I, I think what's really what one of the things that's really going to compel uh, the electrification of our transportation sector is people driving electric vehicles. Uh, when I first got my electric vehicle, I thought, "Oh my God, this is so much more fun than a, a CE uh, engine. It's just amazing." Uh, I, uh, my wife has a fancy European uh, car uh, that's a gas car, and uh, when I get in that car, compared to my electric car, it's, it feels like a jalopy. Yeah. So I think I think one of the things that is going to is really going to propel the adoption of electric vehicles is how much fun they are to drive and how little maintenance you have to do they have to do virtually no maintenance and you know it's like any other technology they're early adopters and but once things catch on uh if it has really truly intrinsic benefits that people weren't able to foresee but they experience them immediately they'll want them yeah Think of the iPhone, for example. I mean, yeah. I think most people on the iPhone came out, I don't need an iPhone, what would I do with that? And now no one can live without a smartphone. Yeah. You have to, well, you can, of course, but yeah. um, it's a lot less pleasant than having a smartphone.
1: <laughs> Make sure you tune into the second part of this discussion with Jeffrey Candy, the CEO of National Real Estate Advisors. We will be talking about transportation infrastructure, heliports, uh, the spreading out of our cities and the change of use of the core of those cities and how we work, live and play and the impact it's going to have on the real estate. And finally, what we've learned from the COVID experience and how it can teach us to prepare for the changes that are still to come. You've been listening to the A podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.